Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. All right, Exodus chapter 20. It's the famous chapter where the Ten Commandments is. Of course, in, in, in Hebrew, the word command is not there. Uh, it's actually, in Jewish culture, it's called a ten-word ketubah. And we're going to talk about what that is in just a second. But this is the opening line of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't start with thou shalt not. It starts with something quite profound. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. See, words, ten-word ketubah. I am the Lord your God. So, so the passage starts with, a, with an affirmation. An affirmation of love. This is, was unique in the ancient world. That, actually unique amongst all gods. Uh, uh, all the gods in that time had their temples, their moments, their time, their ritual, their offering. And this was the idea. If you consent to serve that god, then that god might act on your behalf. Not this one. This one consents in a loving relationship first and then humbly waits on your mutual consent. This, you, would, you might would call that good news uh, back in, in, in the day. Because here's the thing, right? We're in a season of consecration. It just, using it, just say that word, like consecrate. Like that some, there is no way in a room this size that there's not a group of people who automatically resist that word. Like consecration. Ugh. Like what do you mean? And here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. And so oftentimes what people resist it sounds like they're resisting a word, but actually they're not resisting that word. They're resisting the image of that word that has been d developed in them, right? And so there's a way to say something true that creates an untrue imagination of how that word works. Like, let me give you an example. I'm going to say something true, and it will definitely create a not true imagination. One day you will stand in front of Jesus, and he will judge you. True. The problem with that is not what I said. The problem with that is not that it's not true. The problem is the imagery it creates. I've asked all over the world. I said, hey, when I say Jesus is your judge, what do you picture? Almost everybody says, I picture this like court. And like Jesus is the judge and he's looking at your life and he's deciding if you're in or out, right or wrong, right? And then and when I was seven years old, seven, talk about when images get in, just printed on your brain. My Sunday school teacher, who was a good person, told me that one day I was to stand in front of Jesus in heaven and he was going to put my whole life on a giant movie screen for everybody to watch. Okay, okay, first of all, how toxic can you be? Hey, hey little Johnny, say yes to Jesus. He promises to shame you, right? That's weird. It's a wonder we ever said yes to that. It makes me wonder if I was mentally ill that I said yes to that, right? Who, who wants a relationship with someone who's promising you beforehand they're going to shame you in front of everybody? What? Second, how boring can you make heaven? My life at seven was not interesting. My life now isn't that interesting. Look, 13.7 billion years have gone by, right? Like seriously, 13.7 billion people have lived in this world with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives how boring can you make heaven? Right? Imagine that. Take a bathroom break, everybody. Next up, Methuselah. Right? Like, what? Right? So there's a way to say something true, like Jesus is your judge. 
but it creates a not true imagination. And then people resist that. They go, no, I'm not saying yes to that. And then people go, well, they, resi- they, they said no to Jesus. No, they didn't say no to Jesus. They said no to the image of Jesus presented to them. And that Jesus, frankly, should be rejected. See, the, the problem is the Hebrew word for judge is not a heavenly courtroom official. The Hebrew word for judge is someone anointed by God to set you free. And you already, you already knew that. How do you know that? Because there's a whole book in the Bible called the book of judges. These aren't courtroom officials. These are people anointed by God to set us free. So what if we said, hey, one day you're going to stand in front of the full presence of the one fully and finally anointed by God to set you free. Now that's a way more beautiful story than somebody's going to shame you in front of everybody, right? So the same with the word consecration or holiness. The etymology of the word holy is God has trusted you with his breath. God set you apart by trusting you with his breath. Anything God breathes on is holy. So if he breathed on scripture, it's a holy Bible. If he breathed on dirt, which he did, God breathed on dirt and what happens? You, me, we're holy dirt clods. We, we, are, we are inspired dirt clods. Inspired just means to put breath into something. Right? So, so if you say, wait a minute, hang on. So, all right, so I, I'm inspired dirt. Well, if I'm inspired dirt, what's that make me? It makes me holy dirt. And if I'm holy dirt, what's that make me? It makes me holy ground. Sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but actually, wait a minute, it's, it's, it, God trusted you with his breath. Like, you, like a later writer said, let your life be the epistle for all to read. R- really, holiness is, a po- holiness is, not, is not abstaining from a bunch of destructive behaviors, although we should abstain from destructive behaviors. Holiness is a posture towards the breath. So God gifts you. Today, you have 24 hours of God's breath. He gifted it to you. What are you going to do about it? Holiness is God gifted you with his breath. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to treat today with the sacred opportunity it is to be alive? Or are we going to treat it as if it's common? To treat something that's sacred as if it's common has a word for it. Profanity. So to profane. So we can either, as the Jewish people said, we could hallow the name or we can profane the name. What does that mean? To hallow the name means to live every day with a posture towards saying yes to the holy. Essentially, it's God has trusted you with his breath. What are you going to do about it? So when we use words like holiness and consecration, these are not things to be avoided or resisted because if we picture holiness as being perfect or God doesn't like me, you should resist that. If consecration is be perfect so God will accept me, You should resist that. But if consecration and holiness is actually changing our posture to living every day, saying yes to the infinite possibilities of this divine gift of breath, that's an entirely different thing. So my job today is to put language and imagery around this awesome, beautiful idea of consecration. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is express how to approach the scripture, and specifically the book of Exodus as the example, as an invitation to relationship. So, So... the, the book of Exodus follows an outline of an ancient Hebrew wedding. And there's five Hebrew words. Now, I, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that online, or maybe even in here, there's someone who's fluent in Hebrew. If you are, please excuse my pronunciation. I was, I was, uh, I was expressing this one time to a guy that's now my friend. He'd studied in Jerusalem for four years. And he said, what dialect of Hebrew do you speak, Ashkenazic or Sephardic? And I was like, I speak red-necked. Right? So if the pronunciation is a little off, forgive me, right? We're going we're gonna to make so that So that there's five stages of a Hebrew wedding. And here they are. 
Laka, Segula, Mikva, Ketuba, and Hulpa. All right? So I'm going to teach you these words. I want you to say it with some go. Melbourne is back free gusto, okay? All right? So the first one sounds like this. Laka. Ready? Go. Laka. All right? Second one is Segula. Let's try that one. Go. Segula. Right? The third one is Mikva. Let's try that one. Mikva. The fourth one is Ketuba. Let's try that. Ketuba. And the last one is Hoopa. Let's try that. Hoopa. Yes. So this was the five stages of a Hebrew relationship. Laka, Segula, Mikva, Ketuba, and Hoopa. And yes, that is what you're thinking. Now, let me explain by using a modern day parable. So we're going to pretend I'm dating somebody. Um, any reference or, you know, identification is completely unintended, all right? I'm in a Pentecostal place. I'm very aware of naming somebody. Somebody go, He's, God's talking to him. No, 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 all right? I'm dating an imaginary person named Pam. So let's pretend that I'm dating Pam. And there's, like, chemistry, you know. She's laughing at my jokes. I'm so attracted. In, in psychology, it's called limerence. Limerence is the involuntary rush of dopamine in your brain when you're in the presence of somebody. This is what makes you addicted to them. This is why people in the early ages, of, in the early stages of attraction, they can, they can actually have four-hour phone call talks. You're, you're, you're in these young people that get attracted, they, they fall asleep with each, like, like listening to each other breathe on the phone, you know? <laughs> you're like, how's it going with Jim? It's like, it's awesome. We talked for four and a half hours the other night. It's amazing, right? That's why, that's limerence, right? That's, but, but when you're married, you've been married 20 years, a four-hour talk sounds like hell. <laughs> you're really going for it, you know? There's all this chemistry. At some point, you have, a, you, you have a talk, you know, and that talk is like, is this going somewhere? Is this relationship going somewhere, you know? Like, like what's going on here? And so if you decide, yeah, this relationship's going somewhere, the first word she would be longing to hear me say in that world would be, laka. So one night, we go on a date to the Apicus Cafe across the street from the Como Hotel. And it is an amazing night, just brilliant. It's, it is just, everything's perfect. So I walk her to her door after the date. I hold her by the hand, and I say, Pam, laka. Well, she can't contain her excitement. She can't keep her hands off of me. Why? Because if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. She goes into her house. She calls her three best friends and her messages. He said, Lakotomy. He said, Lakotomy. Oh, yeah. He said, Lakotomy. Facebook status change. He said, Laka. <laughs> Laka means my own. Would you be mine? So there's this group of slaves. They've known nothing but slavery their whole, they started as a family, ended up in Egypt, nothing but slavery their whole life. And God starts to deliver them from slavery. And here's all they know. They, they know God's really, really strong, but they have no idea what he might expect from them. Like if I rescue you from slavery, when it comes time for you to make a demand on me, things could get pretty sketchy. So he starts communicating, and it would have been comforting in their world. This is Exodus chapter 6. This is what he says to them. Check this out. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I'll free you from being slaves to them. I'm going to do my job. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own. The word there is laka. 
Now, to an ancient Hebrew person, you didn't have to explain, is God initiating a relationship here? And, and think about how revolutionary this was. Gods don't initiate relationship. Matter of fact, they're not really concerned with it. You go to their temple, their moment, their time, do their ritual, pay their offering, and then maybe, if it's convenient, they'll act on your behalf. This God is not using temple talk. This God is using relational talk. This would have been absolutely revolutionary. It would have been good news. Wait a minute. If you're a, think about it, if you're a slave, you're like, wait a minute. Does God want to marry us? This is wedding talk. This is intimacy talk. This is relationship talk. This isn't you serve me as a slave talk. This is like um, equal partnership. This is like something that would be like unthinkable in that day. Back to our parable. So Pam and I are dating. I've said laka. Only the women can think about this and answer this because men would never understand this. Once I say laka, how long before that wears off? Not long. Three weeks later, those friends are like, has he said Segula yet? Does he have a commitment problem? Is he scared? And Pam's like defending me. Pam's like, shut up. He'll say Segula when he's good and ready, right? But inside, Pam just desperately wants Segula, right? So, 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 so Pam and I go on a date to Grotti, right? Evidently eat the best pizza on earth. She orders the spicy sausage. There's something about somebody eats spicy food. You're like, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Right? <laughs> so you go home, you know. You walk her to her house, walk her to her door, and you're like, Pam, Segula. Oh, she, she is having a hard time containing her excitement. She can't keep her hands off me. Why? Because if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. She goes into her house, calls her three best friends, and says, he said Segula to me. He said Segula to me. Whoa. Yeah, he said Segula to me. Facebook status change. He said Segula now. Segula is Laka 2.0. Segula is the next step. Segula means treasured possession. I know, oh, you see that? You hear that? You can hear the, oh. It's treasured possession. Now, I realize it's 2022. And there'd be some young lady in here going, what, you think you own me? Right? Ch chill. <laughs> I ain't your possession. Right? This was endearing. This was like, uh, think of it as, if that bothers you, just think of special treasure or the most important person in my life. Right? So, Segula. So, this group of slaves in Exodus chapter 6. I will take you as my laka. Same group. Exodus 19 verse 5. God starts communicating himself again. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the, all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. The word is segula. Again, if you're a slave, you're like, is God serious? Like, these are not God-to-man language. This is like husband-to-wife language. When we use words like holy and consecrated and judge, we're not talking about somebody standing above you looking down. We're talking about somebody wanting to engage your broken story in order to make a better narrative. This is, this is the problem with words like repentance. People recoil from that because we have a shame-based imagery. A God standing, repent so I'll be kind, versus, hey, I'm already kind. Let that lead you to repentance. Right? Like, in the Jewish culture, they call it divine mirroring. 
it's, it's another message for another day, but in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, it says, the people of Nineveh repented their evil, so God repented his evil. Which leads to all kinds of questions, like, is God allowed to do that? Like, does God need? That's not the point. The point is, is that the heart of God is that if you're ever willing to go through the pain of repentance, if you're looking for where God is, he's not standing above you demanding it. He's kneeling beside you, repenting with you. It's like this beautiful sort of, sort of way to look at it. Laka, Segula. Now, back to Pam and I. So, I've said Laka, I've said Segula. What word would she be longing to hear? Mikvah. Now, Mikvah is far less romantic. I've preached a version of this in lots of big women's conferences. Huge, like a big civic auditorium full of women, thousands of them. And you go, okay. And, and, the, and the, the owner, the, the owner, the host of the conference asked me specifically to do a message like this. I said, okay, no worries. And you go, you laka, and you explain it. You can hear the women, just like a second ago. You can hear it. Oh. <laughs> then you explain Segula, special treasure. Oh. Mikvah is far, far less romantic. Mikvah means go wash. Girl, you need a bath. Your breath is stinky. Mikvah was a three-day notice. In three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me, so be clean. Like, I need you to be ceremonially clean so I can touch you when you say yes. I mean, hello. Right? So it's, 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 it's a three-day. I don't want to take you by surprise. See, 20 years ago, you surprised people with your proposals. So, so people, it was a reasonable question. Like, hey, hey, he's taking you where? He's taking you to meat and wine company? He's normally a Nando sort of guy. Is, <laughs> is this the night he's going to ask you to marry him? You know? And you're like, I don't know. It seems pretty special. Like, He's dressing up, you know, this kind of, but there was this, there's this mystery. Now, now there's almost no mystery because of social media. You got to outdo everybody. So, so like if, if, so like if you're in a relationship with a guy and he takes you to the bottom of a rock cliff on a beachy shore and there's a professional photographer already there, you're like, well, the mystery's a little bit gone. Yeah. Back then there was no mystery. You said mikvah, three days from now I'm asking you to marry me. And the idea is, is be ready. So, this group of slaves, Laka, Segula, five verses later in Exodus 19. Here it is. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate. Oh, there is. So this, so this word consecrate is relational talk, not conditional talk. Hmm. It's a bit more beautiful than do what I say or I'll hate you. It's because I love you. There's a better life over on this holiness side of things. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. Oh, and have them wash their clothes. Mikvah. Be ready by the third day. Three days from now, I'm going to do something. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So, so mikvah. Now, don't think too hard about this. Three days after Exodus 19 is what? Exodus 20. Right? And Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. In their world, it's a ten-word marriage proposal. Let's go back to Pam and I. So Pam and I, Laka, Segula, Mikvah. Mikvah's a funny thing. Like, honestly, like, you see this in the scripture a lot. The most exaggerated one is the book of Esther. Remember it says Esther bathed in a mikvah for a year before she went into her husband, right? 
bathed in perfume for a year, which I think we could all agree is a bit overkill, right? Seriously. Like, if you need to, if you need to bathe for a year, like, you, you might need to see a doctor, right? There's something going on, right? So, but there was this concept that was around, like, hey, we're going to watch, right? So three days. So Pam and I, uh, three days later, we would get together and do a ketubah. So I'm going to explain ketubah and hoopah together. Ketubah was a marriage contract. This is going to be very elemental. It's deeper than this. But basically, I would sit at a table with Pam, my, me and my dad, and her and her dad. Now, our dads were there for two reasons, wisdom and witness. Because when you got young people wanting to get married, sometimes they need people to go, I know you think that's possible, but that's probably not going to be right. So it's, it's that. So, so here was the rule. I could put anything in the ketubah I wanted, and she could put anything in the ketubah she wanted, so long as we both agreed. Right? Because how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And then that became the rules by which our marriage would be uh, the boundaries. And, and if either one of us just ignored that, that was called marital unfaithfulness. Okay? So you would, you would be unfaithful to the agreement you made in the beginning. Right? Now, once this was established, I would stand up, pay very close attention to this. I would stand and I would say, will you marry me? And she would say, yeah, based on that, yes. Then I would say, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And then she would say, oh, well, when are you going to come back to receive me unto yourself? And I would say, I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves the marriage room I'm going to build for you, I'll come back to receive you unto myself. But be watchful and ready. Does that language sound familiar? Like Jesus starts talking like that. It's like, wait a minute, that's wedding talk. That's, real, that's, that's not master to servant talk. That's... That's husband, that is relationship sort of talk. I, I would then go with my father and we would build a room on the end of the house. Don't make that more than it is. It's like, in, like today, it's hard to picture because people leave home at 21 or maybe in Melbourne, 30. But they, they leave home at some point and they go buy their own home because we have money now. Back then, they, like, they lived in these family compounds, very narrow long center hallway and to be very it's just room there room there room there room there room there room there and everybody lived in one compound and, and so the youngest married people lived at the back so you, and if you and if you ran out of rooms you'd have to build another room and what would happen is is the family storefront was on the front by the road and then as as you got older you moved to the front and then when you died you got moved out of the house and then you just graduate so so your life was like graduating from room to room to room to room to room to room to room. And it was nice to be towards the front of the house until you realized I'm pretty close to death. Now, that's how, that's how that, that would work. So you would build this extra room. There's all kinds of practical application for this, like get your natural world in order before you get married. And all this. But, but for today, let's stick with consecration. So I would go build this room. The father would approve of the room, and then I would go back and get Pam. I'd go back and get, get your wife. And then you'd have a wedding where there would be a hoopah. Actually, two hoopas. So a chuppah is means God's covering or the covering of God's presence. It's um, chuppah is a marriage altar. In almost any wedding I've ever seen, even today, there's some version of a chuppah. People stand underneath archways. Some are elaborate. Some are not. But in that day, a chuppah was basically four sticks in the ground, and they would take a talit prayer shawl, which represented the presence of God, to be covered in God's presence. And they would tie the four corners of the prayer shawl, the tassels, 
to the four corners of the, the, the four thing, and you, you, would, you would stand underneath the presence of God and do your wedding. There was all kinds of cool things like the salt ceremony where the priest would have an empty bag and the, the groom would bring a bag of salt, the, priest would, uh, the, the wife would bring a bag of salt. The priest said, you'd empty both salts into this empty bag and the priest would say, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And the idea was is if you ever had to, if, even if divorce was necessary, you could never totally separate the salt. It was like this beautiful sort of, sort of thing. Then after that, th there was two hoopas. One was for public the second was for private. They, they put the second hoopah in the marriage room. And they, once again, they just put four stakes in the ground around the bed, and they would tie the hoopah to above the bed so that when the marriage was consummated, it was done so under the witness of the presence of God, right? And so, and so what, they, what you would do, it's a little awkward for us because we're, we're more private with our sexuality. They lived in such close quarters. you couldn't. So, so, so they, you would take your wife to the uh, doorway, and you would pick her up. You'd carry her, and we still do that today in some cultures, carry like, right? And so, and so this is the idea, is to pick your bride up. And, oh, by the way, uh, the, where we get the word rapture from, rapture is not a going somewhere escape word. Rapture is, being, is a romantic word. It means to be caught up by your bridegroom. It's being picked up. In, in order to do something. And so, so, you, so you, pick, you, you, you pick your bride up and then you go in there. And this is where it gets a little awkward. Uh, they would just, you, you would consummate your marriage underneath the hoopah. And they just shut the door and like waited on you. Right? Now remember, they're like 13 years old. Right? So they con when you're done consummating your marriage, you come back out. So like 15 seconds later, here they come. You know? and, and then you would have you would have this wedding party. So you would have this, this massive celebration of this unity that was witnessed by the presence of God. Okay, so let's go back to the scriptures. Laka, Segula, Mikvah. Three days later, here comes the marriage proposal. I want you to think about this. This is terrifying. This God has got you out of slavery. What's he going to expect from you? Is he going to expect self-mutilation? Possible. Child sacrifice? Possible. What's God's commitment here? And what's our responsibility? Watch, watch what he says. Next slide. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. So the Ten Commandments starts as an affirmation of love, not a condition for it. Beautiful relationship language. And in Hebrew, you could say, I am the Lord, your God, with two words, Jehovah, Elohim. But there it's Anoki, Jehovah, Elohim. And so the first word of the Ten Commandments is anarchy. Now, just 20 seconds for the Bible nerds. Ancient Hebrew are not letters. They're pictures. Every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word's a comic strip. So when you put the letters, uh, the pictures on the letter anarchy, the A is like a, an ox head going into a yoke. It means the authority to carry something. This, the N is fish multiplying. Like one becomes two, becomes four. It looks like a crescendo. As the CH is a hedge or a fence. The Y is an upraised hand. It's the first letter of the word Yudah, to praise or to surrender, to consecrate. So, so you, have, you have an ox head going into a yoke. You have, you have fish multiplying. You have a hedge or a fence. And then you have an upraised hand. So if you put that all together, next slide, Anarchy says your authority is multiplying inside the hedge of praise and submission. Huh. So the first word of this marriage proposal is, before we go any further... I am committed to make you bigger. I am committed to increase you. 
I'm Think about it. If you're a slave, what is this God? Is this God going to demean us like the slave drivers? That was possible. Hey, I've shown I'm powerful. I'm demanding child sacrifice. I'm demanding you degrade each other. Anything was possible. Not this God. This God's like, okay, before we get started, I am here to make you bigger. Your authority is going to multiply inside the hedge of praise and submission. And, and begin to think of the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal. Think about it. Have no other gods before me. In other words, if we're going to be married, I'd like to be the only one. Right? Hey, don't have idols. In other words, if we're going to be married, could you put the pictures of your old boyfriends away? That'd be good. Right? Hey, hey, don't use my name in vain. Which, by the way, is not a language issue at all. There's a way you can never be profane with God's name with your language, but your whole life is profane. Right? The, the word is carry, nasa. Don't carry my name in a way that disappoints the hope the rest upon it. Literally is the, the Hebrew there. Right? In, in other words, let, let me be very practical. Um, um, don't, don't wear a cross around your neck and then curse out the waitress for taking too long. Don't, when someone cuts you off in traffic, don't catch up to them, point your finger at the sky, and then pass them with a fish on the car. Don't have a really dumb idea that no one gets and add ump to it by saying, God told me. Don't use God's name in vain in a way that disappoints the hope that rests upon it. Hey, oh, I got an idea. Um, let's take one day in seven and just be together. 430 years of slavery. When was their last day off? Never. Imagine there. Wait a minute. Hang on. Did I hear that right? In our new world, we have a mandated day off. This is the, nobody's going, oh, no, he didn't. That's the law. No, no, that's grace. You get a day off? Are you kidding me? Hey, oh, here's a good idea. Don't kill each other. Oh, hang on. In our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't kill the weaker people? They've never had a world like that. Hey, don't sleep with each other's spouses. Hold on. So the, in our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't rape our women? Never had a world like that. When you're a slave in Egypt, they can rape your women. They can kill you. Hey, don't steal each other's things. Oh, in our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't take our stuff? You mean to tell me that in our new world with you, relationship, you've done everything to free us and all you want is us, us consecrated to you, but here's what you're giving back. Our life, our wife, and our stuff are protected and we get a day off? This is unbelievable. Why wouldn't you say yes to this? But, but a marriage doesn't end with ketuvah. It ends with hoopah. Hoopah is God's presence. Next slide. This is the last verse of the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and spoke, they trembled with fear. What a weird sentence. Would you ever say a sentence like that? Like, they saw the thunder and the lightning, heard the trumpet. and so, Wouldn't you say... They saw lightning and smoke and they heard trumpets and thunder. It doesn't say that. It says they saw the thunder. If you go look that word thunder up, the word is kole, which is voices or languages. If you go look the word lightning up, it's glorified fire. It's the same two words Moses used when he said, I saw the voice out of the refiner's fire of the burning bush. So here's what happens, right? Get the picture here. Laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah. They're standing at the base of the mountain after the ketubah is given, and it says the whole thing covered them in the presence of God in smoke. What is that? Hupa. And there was languages or voices inside fire over the top of their head. What would the voices be saying? Will you marry me? 
The Talmud says that on this day in history, God proposed, it actually uses the word proposed, God proposed to all of creation by using 70,000 tongues of fire in the sky and that the tongues of fire went as far as the eye could see. 1857 in Rangoon, Burma, an English sociologist was studying the, uh, the Kiran people in Burma and he asked them, who is your God? And in 1857, the Kiran people said, we serve a God named Yava who proposed to us thousands of years ago with tongues of fire from the sky. This is God reaching out to everybody everywhere. Now, if you're married, what do you do every year on the day you got married? You celebrate your anniversary. If you're not doing that, it's a really good idea, okay? <laughs> sort of rekindle how you feel. So this is what God does. He makes a mandate. Every year on this day, I want you to come together and let's remember this day. So every year, you can read about it in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. Every year on this day, they got together to celebrate their marriage with God. And that day is called <clears throat> Pentecost. So Pentecost was a celebration of the day of Pentecost, which was at the foot of Mount Sinai. And on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is a weird feast. Because it's the only feast where you're commanded to break, to, to make bread made with yeast, not without it. it. It's strange. Like most things, unleavened, unleavened, uh -uh, not Pentecost. Pentecost was leavened bread. And what you would do is you would break the leavened bread and cover it in oil, symbolizing the presence of God. And the prayer of Pentecost was something like this. I thank you, my God, that your unleavened life is willing to become one with my leavened life. That you want relationship with me, flaws and all, issues and all, brokenness and all. The God at creation, the God in scripture, and the God revealed in Christ is never a God that's too holy to be in the presence of your brokenness. He's too holy not to engage the presence of that brokenness, not to hurt you, but to wrap himself around it in order to make a better narrative. This is the story of the entire scripture, and it's wrapped up and symbolized in Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, it says something strange. It says they were all together. Why? Anybody want to be together with that many people? Why? Why were they all together? Because it was Pentecost. And at Pentecost, you got together. And what were you celebrating? Mount Sinai. What happened in Mount Sinai? Languages of fire set over your head and proposed to you from God. Not master to slave language, but relationship language. And they're there, and they would have broke the leaven loaf and filled it with oil. I thank you, my God, that your unleavened life is willing to become one with my leavened life. I thank you for willing to engage my brokenness, my pain, my flaws, all of that. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that where they were sitting, the presence of God covered them like smoke. Where have you seen that before? Exodus 20. And it says they looked up and languages inside fire were sitting on top of their head. So the same exact thing is happening on the same exact day. Only this time, they spoke back, which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The question is, is how should we live with such grace? God wants to engage my broken story, issues and all, flaws and all, leaven and all, brokenness and all. Like God wants to do that. What should the response? Is Numa Church Pentecostal? Yes, it is. But again, that doesn't matter. 
I say, you're a Pentecostal church, so? The word Pentecostal doesn't matter. How people picture the word Pentecostal working matters. And how do Pentecostals act? Well, let's see. Let's, let's go back to Pentecost. Leviticus 23. Check this. On the same day, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting order for generations to come wherever you live. What should your response be to God engaging our brokenness and leaven and, and, and kindness and issues and all, flaws and all? Well, um, when you reap the harvest of your field, don't go and reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing amongst you. In other words, leave it for people who can't do anything in return for you. For I am the Lord your God. There's that same word he used when he proposed. I am the Lord. Remember, I'm here to make you bigger. This is how you do that. Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire set on their head. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues. Does it end there? No. They go outside. They sell everything they could, and they bless the poor and the afflicted. Why? Because that's what Pentecostals do. Pentecostals are not meant to be known as the tongue talkers. Although we celebrate that. If Pentecostals are primarily known for their tongue talking, it's missing the whole point. Pentecostals are meant to be known for being so moved by God engaging their broken story that they can't help themselves but engage other people's broken story. If you're the type that listens to the first two minutes of a message and then you tune out, and then when you feel it winding down, you come back, now's your time. This is your moment. We're talking about consecration. <laughs> if I'm going to summarize the whole sermon in one sentence, it's this. Being consecrated to God always leads to living for others. Being Otherwise, you run the risk of being a group of people just staring at the sky. In Acts 1, remember, the angels come and they say, the, people, the men are there staring, and they say, why do you stand here staring at the sky? The one who went there has called you to do something here. And I'm pretty sure I speak for the heart of Numa and Corey and Simone and the whole team and my buddy Raph, who honestly, I wish I could wear those pants, but here's the thing. <laughs> I can't, his body's just better than mine. Here's the thing. I'm pretty sure I speak for the heart of Numa and the whole team, and that is this. Numa exists to create meaningful experiences with God. It's not empty religion by any means. But we never want to be people who just find ourselves staring at the sky, wanting God to do the next thing for me with no thought of the action in here must go out there. In what form? Being generous with those who can do nothing in return for us. So may you, my brothers and sisters. May my brothers and sisters of Numa Church. May you be the most Pentecostal church in all of Melbourne and Hobart and Perth and wherever all your campuses are. May you be that group by being known for being the most loving and generous people in this entire place. Thank you so much for being part of your day today. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Grace and peace, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, 
But God loved us so much that he gave us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.